I failed to mention that uh, if you, I'm happy to sign a book. I've had to learn this process. I've always resisted this, but with a Dharma book, it feels different signing Dharma books. I always had great aversion to signing books or anything like that, but it's very different with a Dharma book. So I'm happy to do that. And the other thing is that there's also on the back table, I believe, <laughs> there, um, a sign up for uh, you'll you'll you can join a kind of weekly web uh, uh, lesson that comes from the book. You don't have to buy a book or anything to do this, but there if you give us your email address, I do I take a few lines from the book and then give you a reflection for the week. And uh, you're welcome to sign up for that if you like. So, is this too loud? Okay, okay. Life is difficult. You know, have you noticed that? I mean, sometimes it's very clearly difficult. Like today, uh, when I'd been teaching at Spirit Rock all day and I was driving over to here and the front bumper of my car fell off. <laughs> <laughs> That's Duca. That's Duca. Uh, for the newcomers, Duca is, uh, is uh, a word meaning suffering and we'll hear in the course of the talk. It means much more than just suffering. So life, uh, life is difficult. And even when things are going well, it's difficult to have a particular area of your life go well. And if one or two or three areas of your life is going well, something else is going wrong somewhere. Or it's getting ready to go wrong, or you're <laughs> anticipating it's going to go wrong, or, or a, a good friend is ill, or uh, uh, someone's heart's broken, or you get treated unfairly. Life's difficult. It's not only difficult, but difficult is part of the experience in this realm. This realm is like this, having consciousness in an animal body is like this. My teacher, Rabinavad Tomato, who is going to be teaching starting tomorrow night at Spirit Rock for 10 days, uh, taught me this phrase that this moment is like this. And it is an inviting in of the truth of our experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, uh, a willingness to be receptive to our experience so that we can receive it in such a way that we can truly recognize the truth of it. So we, we know this moment's like this, knee pain's like this, restlessness is like this, excitement's like this. This opening to life. And so we open to the fact that part of life is that it's difficult. This is an existential dilemma. It's a priori to anything you may believe as to why life is like it is or what happens later on after we die. It's a fact. It's, it's, uh, it's just there. So one is confronted with that before one's belief system. That makes it an existential truth. Uh, and uh, 
the West, we think of Sartre and his colleagues as being the first existentialist. But in my view, the Buddha was the first great existentialist. And not only that, he was a great phenomenologist. He deconstructed the daily experience of life into these very small pieces where one could know them. And know, oh yes, this is life and this is life. And these are these characteristics. And he himself did this. He was motivated by what do we do? What does he do with the fact that life is difficult? He was a, a small kind of rural prince, but he was a prince. So the world turned around him and his family. And yet, everything that he cared about was going to go away. All those he cared about were going to die. And as he realized this, he was confounded with this as an existential dilemma. Apart from all the belief systems of his time, of which there were uh, a robust series of belief systems in his time. And so he went out to try to face this question because not only is life difficult, there is this sense that we're somehow supposed to be responsible for it. We're responsible for ourselves. And yet, it doesn't take a day, it doesn't take an hour to see that we're not in control of what happens to us. So, huh? How can we be responsible when in fact we can't control it? It requires a kind of paradoxical thinking. And in doing that, we find a way to be with life. I term this uh, paradox and how to do this dancing with life because to me, that was how I experienced it. I was uh, uh, reasonably able, compared to most people, to have a lot of events go the way I wanted them to go in my life. I worked very hard and I was very enthusiastic and very fortunate, had a lot of energy. And I saw that many things happened as I was trying to get them to happen, but far, 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 far more things happened in some other way. And so what does one do with this? How does one dance with life? How do you be a good dance partner? Life's going to happen to you no matter what you do. We'll try it right now. You try to not have life happen to you right this moment. <laughs> Anybody succeed? So that life happens to us is not the question. The question is what kind of dance partner do you want to be? And there's a wide range. You can sort of be drug onto the dance floor, be drug around, get knocked into other people, get your toes stepped on a lot as you step on a lot of toes and flail your arms in a way that you bop people in the nose. Or you can actually bring a mindfulness, an intention to the moments of your life, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. You can yield to the movement of life. In Aikido, we would refer to it as blending with the energy of life. That's how we learn to uh, defend ourselves, is 
in a way that we didn't have to hurt someone else. We would blend with the energy of the attack. So you dance, you blend with the energy of life, and you respond as best you're able to however life is going. A lot of people get uncomfortable with this surrendering to the truth that life dances. Because this illusion of control gives them a comfort. But I would suggest that it's a false comfort, and that it actually separates us from our lives when we start to do that. This idea that, no, we can get it the way we want it. It, it, it. It's sort of like, oh yeah, it's not that scary. But then we also aren't really present, because we can't be present for certain things because it doesn't fit our storyline. So we're a little removed. And I'll tell you another one. When we aren't willing to be with life because it may be unpleasant, then we aren't able to be fully present when it's quite pleasant. An easy example of that is you've just gone on a hike up Mount Tam, and it's at sunset, and it's so beautiful, and you've, you've climbed all this way up there, and you go, oh, this is so beautiful, and you're just, oh, I just love this nature, filled with appreciation. Wonderful. And then you start thinking, you know, I need to do this more often. Oh, I wish so-and-so here with me. Why don't I do this more often? It's true, isn't it? You, you're, you're trying to beat the rush hour, and you beat the rush hour, and you, so you made it across the bridge. But then what if you don't find a parking place where you want it? it uh, this unwillingness to go with what life brings Moving towards our preferences as best we're able, because what's wrong with that? But not clinging towards our preferences. Being willing to dance with life, to meet what comes and stay present with it with loving kindness and compassion. This is dancing with life. When we do this, when we start to become a good dance partner in this way, a skillful dance partner, better said, we cease to be a victim to what happens to us. We cease to be in reactive mind to whatever happens. We move into a relationship of empowerment to life. It's a genuine relationship. With reactive mind, we're like one of those puppets on the string. If it's pleasant, it pulls us this way. If it's unpleasant, it pulls us this way. So if it's pleasant, oh, I want that, or oh, I've got it and I want to keep it, I want more of it. That's, that's that little string of pleasant pulling us. Or oh, I don't want that, that's unpleasant, or get that off me, that's unpleasant. So we dance, pulled by these little strings. That's one form of dancing with life. But to me, there's no freedom in it. There's no freedom at all. Whereas if we choose to be a good dance partner, we move into a, a, a genuine relationship with life, where instead of being reactive, we move into a responsive mode to life. Responsive, where we come from choice. What choice? From our deepest values. So if it's pleasant, we come from our deepest values. If it's unpleasant, we come from our deepest values. We're not on these strings of pleasant or unpleasant anymore. This isn't something that we have to work 10 years to 
ever feel at all. You can feel it this week if you move into your life this week. Not every moment of it, but a few moments when you remember, because that's one of the hard things about mindfulness practice is remembering to be mindful. One of those ironies, one of those paradoxes. But this very week, you can say, ah, and settle back. Rest, as I talked about the pelvis resting on earth, how, the, how attention can rest on the breath. Oh, here I am. And someone at the office is uh, acting unfairly towards me. This is very unpleasant. The mind starts to get all tense. The body gets tense. You're going to say something. Or if you don't dare say something because it's the boss, then you go out and you're, you know, you kick the dog. You're mean to someone else. Or no, oh, this is just unpleasant. Life is dancing with me in a way at this moment that's unpleasant. Unpleasant feels like this. Being treated unfairly is like this. Not being able to stand up for myself feels like this. Very different. So what happens then? Oh, well, this hurts. So there comes compassion for yourself. Uh, there's this uh, well intention towards yourself, this loving kindness. And so you leave that situation and you go down the hall to a colleague. And rather than bringing your anger, your tension to the colleague, you're available for whatever arises with the colleague. The colleague's just found out you know, that uh, her husband uh, you know, is going to go in for some uh, serious medical test. You know that. You find that out because you're not closed down. And she gets to tell you that because you're, you're available. Your heart's available. Or you go back to your office and you start working on something and instead of being all clouded in your mind because you were uh, resisting dancing with life, you notice something. You go, well, I'm, God, I'm catching this. This is going to be another whole problem. But your mind wasn't clouded, so you caught it. Or you're, you're, uh, you're there and you're dealing with something and you have an intuition about it. And why did you have that intuition? Because you weren't resisting life and you were there in your body and in the body is where intuition arises from. When you're present in the body, I've taught this to many, many people in many modalities other than uh, just the Dharma world. If you want to increase your intuition, drop into the body. Stay present in the body. That's, it comes as this kind of quiet little feeling at first. Or it, it has space and it just appears in it. So this is dancing with life. So I got interested in all of this uh, quite early in my adult life. I was in my early 20s and I uh, went to a yoga ashram, uh, sort of on an act of faith. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I started studying Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga is a, the, one of the eight limb versions of yoga and involves a lot of meditation and uh, some tantric-like experiences. And um, Although I was a workaholic, really very intense workaholic, I also uh, brought that same intensity to my yoga practice. And uh, as, as the, was said in the introduction, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, have access to uh, a lot of samadhi. So uh, I, again, with no sense that at all that, oh, well, I'm someone who can do this, because my body was beat up from childhood, so I have all of these, had, had and still have all these various injuries that uh, make sitting quite challenging in many ways. 
And yet, for whatever reason, uh, this, the, this samadhi and a lot of altered states were available to me. But then, and that, and at first, for well, the first few years, this happened. Everything it felt great, and I had this uh, idea that, oh boy, this is going to get better and better, and it's all going to unfold, and I'm really going to be able to do this throughout my life. But what would happen is, I would get back from the ashram, and after two or three days of being in this kind of calm, really generous, open space, I'd watch me start to contract back in, and I'd go, "What's happening to me?" And the more the years went by, it would be after a day and a half, and then a day, till finally it reached the point I, I would get off the plane and I'd be back into my contracted self. And uh, so it was clear to me that I was doing something wrong in my approach, but I did not know what to do right. I didn't have a teacher I was close to, and um, I, 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 I was not a Dharma bum at all. I was a guy who work 70, 80, 90 hours a week. And so um, it, was, it was a strange combination of this. But I did try to bring into my work life, uh, the language that I used in those days was that every work situation is just another yoga pose. So facing something with the budget is a yoga pose. Having to fire someone is a certain kind of stretch. Having someone leave that you desperately need is a yoga pose. It's a kind of stretch. And I, I, I was very diligent about this. I mean, I would get to the office, uh, crossing the threshold, I would remind myself of this. Going up on the elevator, I would say a little chant. I mean, I was, I was doing the practice. But it, I just could not sustain it. And I talk about this in Dancing with Life and the, the, the challenge of all of that. And uh, in 1983, uh, thanks to a friend, I went to my first Vipassana meditation retreat, which uh, was inauspicious, to say the least, because I, I got there and I had to sleep in the basement where the pipes had flooded and there was this much water on the floor, so I had to walk through this water and sit on my bed and take off my shoes and put them on the, the windowsill. And this was in Massachusetts in February, in the middle of winter. Awful experience. Then I, I go into the hall, having read nothing about Vipassana, and they say, well, just be with the breath. Whatever you do, don't control it. Well, I'd spent 10 plus years learning to control the breath. And I could not control the breath. <laughs> And I thought, well, these people don't know what they're talking about. You're never going to have a bliss state if you don't control the breath. And uh, it was, the whole retreat was like that. And yet, there was something to it. There was something there. And after a series of less than ideal retreats, I found Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and they became my teachers. And um, things became much more harmonious for me. And um, it's, it's been that way ever since. And what I found in the Buddha's teaching in the Theravadan tradition was really a wonderful uh, kind of uh, blueprint for dancing with life. So got more and more involved in all of this. And then uh, 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 one day, I, this is after I'd started teaching Vipassana, 
I'm sitting in a retreat with the Venerable Sumedho, Ajahn Sumedho, who is Ajahn Chah's lineage holder. Ajahn Chah was one of the, the, the great Thai forest uh, uh, teachers of the last century. And uh, when he died, he passed his lineage holding to Ajahn Sumedho. And um, so I met, I met, uh, I was with a group of teachers before the retreat started. We spent some, a day with him. And I was going, wow, this guy is really right up my alley. I really, this, uh, first of all, he's, uh, he's, he's a man in his uh, early 70s. And he was then, I guess, late 60s. But he was, uh, he just laughed a lot. And it was just, he was, he was dancing with life. It was just visible to me. So I was, went to this retreat with him. And about the second or third day in, um, the evening Dharma talk, he says, well, you know, I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths tonight. Now, at this point, I'd probably heard the Four Noble Truths taught three or four hundred times. So it wasn't exactly my favorite topic, but it's Ajahn Sumedho. It's fine with me. And then he said something that was um, quite new. He said, you know, in the Samyutta Nikaya, Samyutta Nikaya is one of the old text of the Buddhist teachings, collections of the Buddhist teachings, for those of you who knew. The way the Four Noble Truths are taught is as a series of 12 insights, each noble truth having three insights that you're to realize. And so in this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, it's not a philosophical statement, but rather a practice. It's a developmental practice that you progress through these 12 insights. I was very interested in that. And I had never heard this taught this way. And then over the subsequent nights of the retreat, we went through most of these insights. And then I studied these insights with him in, in great detail. And in fact, as I was hearing the Four Noble Truths, as insights, a lot of dots started getting connected in my experience. A lot of insights I had had, I started having these aha moments around. And it was in that context that I started to change my practice and how I teach. And then that all culminated in Dancing with Life, which is really my experience of having worked with the Venerable Sumedho's teachings. And what I have taken from it. For those of you who are new, the Four Noble Truths, the first is that there is suffering. Not that everything is suffering, mind you, but there is suffering. There is dukkha. Dukkha doesn't mean just suffering in the way we use that word. Uh, dukkha is like stress, unreliability, uh, dissatisfaction, no ease, no place to rest. For those of you who are old enough, Catch-22, you know what that means, some of you. It's all of that is dukkha. It's just, it's, life's difficult, you know. It's just difficult. And, um, the, the Buddha gives a much more sophisticated and subtle description of the three kinds of dukkha, which we may or may not get to tonight. But um, yeah, it's life is difficult. And so that's the first noble truth. And then the second noble truth is that there is a cause for dukkha. And that cause is clinging. And um, there's three insights to be practiced around this. 
And then the third noble truth is that there's a cessation of dukkha. And there are three insights to be practiced around that. And then the fourth noble truth is that there's a path to the end of, to the end of suffering, path to cessation. And there are three insights to be practiced around that. And uh, the Four Noble Truths are the core teaching in all the yamas, all the schools of Buddhism. All schools, uh, uh, Mahayana, Tibetan, Zen, they all would agree that, and the Theravadan, of course, that the, the Four Noble Truths contain all the teachings. It was the first teaching the Buddha gave, the first turning of the wheel, and it contains within it all the wisdom that then gets extrapolated and all these thousands of uh, subsequent teachings from the various traditions. So uh, 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 each, each truth has these three insights. The first is a, a philosophical insight that you use the old coconut to realize. So there is suffering, there's dukkha. Does that make sense to me? Have I witnessed that in life? Yes, when I think about how life is, can I, can I intellectually support that? And there is a gradual intellectual realization of the truth of that. And, and so you know it, you know it. There's a kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. From that basis, then the second, uh, the second inside of each of the four truths is a call to practice to get your hands dirty, to have the you know, rubber meet the road. And that is to, in the instance of the first noble truth, that this, this noble truth is to be penetrated by understanding dukkha. That is to voluntarily stay present when dukkha arises, when there's stress, when there's uh, dissatisfaction, there's fear, there's unease in your life. To stay present in such a way that you feel the ouch of it. Sometimes in the mindfulness meditation, you can get this uh, idea that uh, being mindful is this kind of removed, ah, yes, there is pain. That poor body is experiencing pain. But that's not my understanding at all of what the Buddha was saying. But rather, you, you know pain within the pain. In the Buddha's teaching of the Samyutta Nikaya of the four uh, of the of the four foundations of mindfulness, each, each he takes all of our experience as a whole spectrum and he divides it up into body, into pleasant, unpleasant, into mental activity, and into what are called the, the dhammas or dharmas. And each of those is to be felt. The body is felt within the body, pleasant and unpleasant within pleasant and unpleasant. He uh, the uh, the Buddha was a master psychologist. Uh, 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 he, he was directing us into experience that the way out of this dukkha is through it. You don't go around it. It's like you don't, life stays painful. It's, it's your relationship to, to the pain in life that changes dramatically, dramatically. Uh, the Buddha uh, had all these various kinds of pain in his life. He once fell down and was lying there injured for a long time, and he would say to Sariputta or Ananda or someone, you know, I'm tired, I need to rest. You teach the Dharma. So he was a human being like us, and he, he wasn't, he didn't become Superman where he didn't feel the pain of life. 
he found a, a radical, radical new relationship to the experience of pain. It didn't have anywhere to land. It just arose and passed moment by moment. So for us to be willing to step into our own experience of the dukkha of life, of willing to be there with whatever is arising, that's the practice. So one way to think about this is this removed kind of mindfulness. You witness that when you go to the supermarket and you put your milk there and it goes across that scanner and it, the little machine says 349, milk 349. It's accurate. Milk is 349. It's, gotten all, it's taken all this other data and it's saying it to all these other places. But it didn't know the taste of the milk. It never knew the wetness. It never felt that uh, thirst quenching. It never mixed the milk with some cereal. There was no life in what the scanner knew. Do you really want your life to be like a scanner? Is that what you're training? I don't think so. I think, uh, my, my, in my experience with yogis, is that you actually want to feel the wetness. You want to know the sweetness. And if it's sour, to recognize that it's sour. That requires dancing with life. If your aspiration is to be the scanner, not the teaching for you. <laughs> so that requires this practice. And we'll see that in relation to uh, the first noble truth, that requires a lot of courage. And then the, the third insight is uh, of something that has been uh, so meaningful to senior students. And the third insight of each noble truth is to uh, know that you know, as Sumedho puts it, to have this, that, that this noble truth has been realized. This knowing you know. It's a way in part of acknowledging what you know. It's also, in my words, a call to integrate. It gives you a basis for going forward into these other insights. This knowing you know. So, to go through the noble truth of dukkha and to know that you know suffering makes you uh, different. It changes it. Because if you know suffering, if you know you can show up for suffering in your life, then your relationship to suffering has already changed. Even though you're clinging and not wanting it to be this way or you're whining about it or whatever you do, but you're willing to be there. You're willing to be there. You don't shun it. You don't run away. You don't alibi it away. You don't, as T.S. Eliot says, you don't distract yourself from distraction by distraction. You show up. In Aikido, we used to call it uh, getting up on the mat, just showing up on the mat. Most of uh, life's messages are to distract yourself by, from distraction by distraction. Don't you know, get insurance so that you don't have to admit that, you know, bad things happen. Yeah? To, uh, on and on and on. Flip those channels of the television set. 
one thing after another. And so as we, as we move to this kind of a relationship, then we, 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 we really start to be empowered. In the classic teaching, all 12 insights are fully realized in their fullness at the moment of total realization. But along the way, we, we start to have more and more the knowing of this. And so it builds. And it, it works sequentially. And also, it works circularly. So as you have the insights of the second noble truth, you then start to have uh, uh, ability to have deeper realizations of the insights of the first noble truth. So I tell people reading the book, because it's divided in four books, one for each of the four noble truths, after you've read this, through the second book of the second, that is the second noble truth, go back and read the first noble truth again. You'll see how much more you know. It'll, you'll learn the same words will mean something new to you because you have a deeper knowledge. You have a deeper uh, presence from which you can receive the, the profundity of the truth. You can see for yourself, for those of you who are interested. Another thing that I have witnessed is that in the teaching, in the practice of, or uh, just being exposed to the Four Noble Truths, it is very uh, often true that yogis jump from the First Noble Truth almost immediately to the Second Noble Truth. There's a cause of suffering. Yeah, let's get to that cause of suffering with the idea, I'm going to get rid of this suffering. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to, we're very developmentally oriented in part. So we're going we're gonna to jump ahead. And I say over and over and over again, you miss so much if you don't spend time hanging out in this first noble truth, feeling the ouch of the suffering, feeling the ouch of the pleasant, because the pleasant turns into unpleasant when it goes away. So this, this great ability of staying with this first noble truth. We, we have a hard time doing that because suffering has a bad name in our society. I uh, often joke uh, that the Buddha didn't say one crummy truth and three wonderful truths, or, or, or one horrible, disgusting, shameful situation and 12 easy steps for getting rid of it. <coughs> that, that's not the teaching. It's a noble truth. This noble truth of suffering is to be realized. This noble truth of suffering. O ye nobly born, he would say, to people of all castes, because he was not, he did not discriminate at all. O ye nobly born, this noble truth. So what makes suffering noble? What makes it noble? Just to uh, give you a little bit of uh, his, uh, his own flavoring of this, of Ajahn Sumedho's. He wrote the preface for the book. Um, first of all, just his talking about how important the Four Noble Truths are. I have observed how rarely the practical use and applications of this essential teaching of the Four Noble Truths are taught and practiced in Theravadan countries. Even the Vipassana movement in the West 
seems to only pay lip service to it, when in fact the Four Noble Truths are a lifetime reflection. I find it quite mind-boggling that in the Buddha's world, this really profound teaching has been dismissed as primitive Buddhism. So, uh, this is, you know, my senior lineage holder saying this. Um, so, and he himself, uh, he was exposed to this, uh, this uh, in terms of, he went off and lived, he spent 10 years with Ajahn Chah living in uh, very challenging circumstances in uh, the, the, the northeastern forest of Thailand. But his first year he spent by himself in, in a Thai monastery, not speaking a word of Thai. And he was the only English speaker in this. And all he had was this little booklet of the Four Noble Truths. And here's what he says about it. This small booklet was the only teaching material I took with me when I began a year-long retreat at a monastery in Thailand. Uh, none of the monks spoke English, and I had no grasp of the Thai language, so I could not understand the Dharma talks or engage in discussions with other monks. All I had for inspiration and instructions was the synopsis of the Four Noble Truths. I spent a year in a little hut reading and rereading the booklet and putting the teachings into practice. That year, 1966, I spent reflecting and practicing the Four Noble Truths was the most significant and powerful year of my life. Living alone with nothing to do, no one to talk with, only one small book to read, and only a beginner's experience in meditation, I could easily relate to the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. <laughs> my daily life without its usual distractions presented me with a lifetime supply of suppressed anger and fear. For the first three months, I had to endure an almost continuous flood of hatred, rage, anger, and fear. This deluge of negativity was not at all what I was expecting. I had been looking forward to a life of tranquility. <laughs> it became apparent after several weeks of fumbling resistance to this turmoil that the only way I could survive to endure these emotional storms was by watching them. This insight arose after contemplating the first noble truth that there is suffering. It was clear that, we'll skip that part, uh, so this, so there he was recognizing this is suffering. And then uh, reflecting on the second insight of the first noble truth, that suffering should be understood, I found that the only way that I could understand my hatred and anger was to stand under it. In other words, to observe the feeling, the mood, and the emotional atmosphere with patient endurance. And so it is with our own difficulty in life to stand under. He likens it to standing under a waterfall and letting that water come down. So it takes courage to stand under the waterfall, to feel the ouch, to feel the wetness of the milk, to feel the itch of the poison oak, to feel the disappointment of not being chosen. It, it takes courage. It's a kind of courage that doesn't mean that you don't uh, have a preference that it be otherwise. This is one of these confusions also that so easily happens. We practice the loving kindness and the compassion, which are again for new people, we have very specific meditation practices around loving kindness and compassion, because to be able to endure the moments of our lives 
We need that. Life's too hard otherwise to really stay present, to really feel the elegy. It's said that the Dharma flies on two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And without both, the Dharma can't fly, your heart can't open. And that's certainly my experience. Life's tough, it's scary, it's anxiety evoking, it's stressful. Dukkha means stress, very stressful. It's an existential angst, this realm that we live in. And the kindness and the compassion uh, combined with the mindfulness allows us to stand under it. Another one of my teachers, a woman named Helen Luke, who some of you may have read her book. She's dead now. She was a union analyst and head of retreat center in Michigan. Uh, she likens uh, uh, suffering uh, to a wagon bearing a load. And it comes from, in the Latin word suffering, comes this word fiere, to bear, to carry. And interestingly enough, dharma comes from the root word dar, which means bear. So dharma, the truth of things. To know the truth of things is to bear the truth of things. To know the truth of things directly, not just theoretically, not just in the old coconut, but to feel the truth in your heart, in your belly. That's, that mindfulness is direct experience, it's direct insight, it's intuitive. It's, it's not inductive nor deductive in its practice form. Again, in these first insights of each truth, you do get to deduct and induct and reflect and all. But in this practice level of uh, the rubber meeting the road, uh, you know, feeling the wetness, it's, it's, it's direct, it's direct. It's right here, right now. It, it is bypassing your conceptual mind. You've all had many experiences when you've bypassed your conceptual mind. Lovemaking, when it's wonderful, bypasses the conceptual mind. When the conceptual mind's too much there, lovemaking's not so great. Uh, 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 playing the piano, at some point, you, you cannot do that expression if you're trying to do it through the conceptual mind. You surrender. You have practiced over and over again. You've done those scales and all of this so that your, 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 your body-mind knows what to do. But at that moment when you're really playing the Mozart, you go with it, or the jazz riff. You can't, I mean, jazz is so obvious in that because you can't, there's no structure. You can't think it through. You've got to do it in real time. This is the Buddha's teaching, to show up moment to moment in this way. And when we do, even though we're far, 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 far from enlightened, we are a bit noble. We're a bit noble at the office. We're a bit noble at home when we can, we can take, oh, this, isn't, this doesn't feel good right now. And we can say to our partner, you know, I'm, I'm feeling hurt by this. Or, you know, when I just went off on you about not taking the garbage out, it was overdone. I can feel the suffering in that. We, uh, we've, uh, we, our heart living becomes available to us. Joy and meaning become available even though we still get caught over and over again. We've got a basis to start practicing. We've got a basis to start moving from su suffering to freedom, from moving from clinging to non-clinging. So this is dancing with life, and it starts right there. When we collapse underneath 
that which is coming from a different word. This is like a gravere, this uh, collapse, or a, 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 a affligé, this to be inflicted where we get struck down by. That's not bearing the suffering. Sometimes, because of medical reasons, we get done in, or if we can get overwhelmed. But the practice is this mindfully staying present with compassion and feeling our experience and responding as best we're able. That's the practice. That's to bear. Helen Luke refers to it as objective suffering rather than subjective suffering. Subjective suffering is that resistance to our mind. Oh, this isn't fair. I don't like this. This shouldn't be happening this way. And maybe you're right. It's not fair. And it shouldn't be happening. But it is happening. Your resistance to the experience does not empower you to change the experience. And it makes the living of it far worse. Again, I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to go see for yourself. So what I'm saying is that when it's unpleasant, if you resist it, it becomes more unpleasant. And if it's pleasant and you're in a resisting mode, you're missing, missing uh, a lot of the pleasant. So you're, you're not fully able to dance with life in either way. That's a pretty radical statement. And I got it from the Buddha, so <laughs> you, can, you, can see, you can see for yourself if this is true. So uh, this call to, uh, to, to be a noble one who bears, who bears who dharma, who, who bears the dharma, who wishes to know the truth of things as a felt sense, dropped attention, like I, in the guided meditation, asked you to drop into the body, this felt sense of your life. That's where your life is. As far as I can tell, it's where my life is. Because we, we uh, in our society, uh, feeling the ouch, can, uh, we, we, we can feel it as an ego's personal defeat, right? You, you know, when you, you're like, things aren't going well at work, your ego feels this kind of like, you know? It's, it feels uh, embarrassed, humiliated. That's just the ego having uh, grandiose view of itself, which has been culturally conditioned because we've been taught that we're, we're supposed to be able to control things. Or something, you know, your marriage breaks up and, you know, he or she are left. And there can be a kind of a, a, a shame in this as though, you know, you, you, you let things down. You, you really weren't, you couldn't control things. And there's this kind of cultural shame because so much of the message is winners don't suffer. But it's not true. <laughs> I've known a skew of winners. I've known the winners and I mean the, the names and all. I've known them quite well. They all suffered just like me and you. You know, I mean I've, I sat with them in bars and <laughs> I've, I've, I've been in their meeting rooms. I've been in their homes. There's no people out there that don't know suffering. It's, 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 a, it's a cultural illusion that is, uh, has a tyrannical force on us sometimes. It causes us in unconscious ways to swerve around and not show up. And then the third thing is guilt. There must be something wrong with me, or I've really screwed up my life, or, or this bad karma. This, these things happen to me because of my bad karma. A big misunderstanding of karma. A big misunderstanding of karma. It's 
It's making it temporal in a way that it's not temporal. It's different than that. That would be another Dharma talk. But so uh, to free ourselves of these kinds of uh, impositions from our culture and say, no, I'm going to show up in my life. If it's unpleasant, I will know the unpleasant. If it's pleasant, I'll be there for it. So with that as uh, uh, an offering for the evening, I would uh, uh, offer you the chance to uh, make any statements or any questions you have or any issues you want to take with these statements, anything you would like to say. I'd just like to add something I learned a long time ago, which is the root meaning of the word <coughs> root meaning of the word dukkha, where it came from way, way, way back means a wagon wheel that's not true on the axle. Yes. So it's kind of, there's something fundamentally wrong. It's wobbling yeah. and it's not it's the way it's squeaky. supposed to be. And, th and this, life is, this life has that squeak in it. Yeah. Yes, uh -huh. that's, that's absolutely right. And the wagon, so when you think of suffering, meaning to bear and her liken it to a wagon, or, and his stand under the waterfall that's standing under, when the squeaky wheel, it can't support right. And, and it's, but the dukkha is inherent in it. It's not like uh, it, it's your relationship to the dukkha that, that you get free. You get free of a certain relationship. The, life, life, the conditions of life stay the conditions of life. Thank and the converse, sukha, which is the contentment or happiness, means a wheel that's true on the axle, so it's rolling just exactly yeah. as it's supposed to roll. Thank you for that. Any, again, anything in your life, anything that you want to bring up in terms of this? Well, I wanted to ask a question about balancing compassion for oneself with compassion for the other. Mm -hmm. So um, the, this comes up quite a bit, and like, because uh, it can be seem indulgent to have compassion for yourself. Like, and a lot of people have uh, struggled to have compassion for themselves, whereas they can be very compassionate for their friends and have to do a lot of, uh, of uh, mantra practice around compassion to help balance that out. So compassion for yourself is not a narcissistic kind of, oh, woe is me, or, or it's, it's supposed to always be my turn. Compassion is because you feel the actual pain of the experience, and you've got immediate access to it. So it's a recognition. It's, uh, the Buddha referred to it as the heart's quiver. It's impersonal in that sense. Oh, this hurts. This hurts. So let's say there's that difficult person at the office who was unfair to you. So uh, the first thing is, oh, this hurts. That's compassion for yourself. That's this recognition of what's true. And then out of that space, you're far more likely to be able to say, wow, this person must live in a hell realm. This person's putting me through this right now, but that's what they live in all the time. And so it comes, the recognition comes because you're in a compassionate space. Now sometimes you deliberately cultivate compassion for the difficult person, and that's a wonderful practice. But the, the, uh, so the balance would be, you would know it was out of balance if in fact you were using it to rationalize or justify. 
and, and again, the more you're in your body, the more you feel it. Because you, when you're in your body and you, you're rationalizing, well, it's okay because I'm hurting so much. It, it just, the feeling of it's off. There's not harmony. It's not sukha. It's its its, it's own form of dukkha, rationalization like that. Is that clear? Someone in the back? So the first insight of each truth is an intellectual kind of insight. In uh, the the Pali term for it is um, I'm always forgetting this. Uh, I won't say it right. Um, is um, uh, 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 par, uh, parayata, and then the practice insight is patipati. And then the, the, the realization that this has been realized is, is Pati Veda. You can find this. You can go online and find this. Am I getting this thing? Um, well, I, I'm the stranger to, to pain. I, I get migraine, migraines mm. pretty regularly. Um, but I want to ask you, I, I do different things, um, but one of them is that I, I um, meditate mm -hmm. on, on the pain, and, and uh, that seems to help. Um, it, you, but you also said something about the, the um, desire to stop it, or the, uh, I, I got the, the opinion that, um, that the desire for it to just go away yeah. is, is not good, but I must have misunderstood well, you. So uh, there would be no reason, if you had a choice of having the pain go away, you would have the pain go away. That's compassion. So uh, when I talk about not resisting the pain, you, you're not res resisting, it's arising, but if you can, okay, so here I am, let's suppose, let's say I'm holding this, but it had been in a flame, so I'm holding it. Now, I, I, it, my not resisting the knowing of the pain informs me this is hot, <laughs> so I put it down. And I put it down out of compassion, so if you could put your migraine down, you could put your migraine down. You're, you're not resisting it, uh, uh, it gives you more information, but also you're not resisting it in the moment it causes you not to further contract so that you make those blood vessels constrict even more. So, and when, you're when you say you meditate on it, and it seems to help sometimes, that's because you're just being with it. The trick, though, is that at some point, uh, your nervous system can get too tired if you're staying with it too long, and then it starts to go into its own form of resistance. So then you can actually be working against yourself. So there's a balance of that, of staying with the physical pain, being with it, and then if it feels like you're getting exhausted, finding a neutral object or finding space, taking space or hearing as your object. And so there, there, this, your migraine is uh, arising in this greater field of awareness. You can try that. Yeah. Um, thank God I don't uh, know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> with that last piece, I, yeah. I well, you're lucky. I That's guess, true. Uh, I, and I want, I don't want to know. I want, uh, no. don't know. Sometimes <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> yeah. 
I was just reminded of, you know, I think uh, in the U.S. it's kind of the pursuit of happiness, and I was thinking it should actually be the pursuit of dukkha, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pursuing happiness. It's it can't be pursued. It's act in a sense. I mean, I, I I believe when I pursue it, I become that uh, that big vat that just keeps putting everything out that uh, doesn't distinguish, like you said, Leslie. If if we hear pursuit as grasping after, uh, then then that would be leading to suffering. If we if we hear it as following a path, you know, pursuing by going down a path, then we could say, oh my gosh, those guys were actually, <laughs> and and the, the, and of course part of the whole, uh, the, the the Buddhist ideas were prevalent around the time of of the Constitution. So that's another story too, but um. Uh, uh, the Buddha talked about happiness here and now uh, at, at, at lots of different points in his text. As a matter of fact, in one of his lists about happiness, he says being debt-free is happiness. <laughs> so even in his time. So uh, there, there's, not, there's nothing, uh, happiness is not a bad word, but happiness where we're trying to grasp and control things to have everything just the way we want it he suggests is not such a great strategy. It doesn't mean that you don't move towards your preferences. You've got to have goals in your life. Goals give you something to do, and uh, they tell you how to allocate your time and, uh, uh, and, and your resources, and they add to the spice of life. Oh, am I going to get this? You know, is, is this person going to be interested in me? Am I going to get that job? Am I going to get this job done? Am I going to be able to you know, uh, run that mile or bicycle this? 50 miles, whatever it is. That's all, that's, that's the joy of life. It's just playing with life. It's showing up in the movement of life. But if you grasp after any of those things, then you take something that actually was a, a, a source of joy and it becomes a kind of uh, a source of dukkha and can easily turn into a hell hole. Well, I see that we're almost at the end here. So um, I have a um, different way of, those of you who've been in the, how many of you have actually been to the Marin Sangha? Show of hands, one, two, three, four, good. You have to help me with this. So um, I do a form of loving kindness, and we do it out loud as call and response. And uh, I use a series of phrases that I developed when I was doing volunteer work in a prison for four years. And with, uh, 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 Excuse me. When I first introduced these phrases, I was using the standard phrases that I'd been taught, and some of them worked and some of them didn't for the, 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 this particular population cohort. And so gradually I worked out these phrases with them that, uh, that seemed real to them that they could imagine, and they are living under very tough circumstances. And have wonderful BS detectors. And so, um, uh, these, so each time I do these phrases, I also uh, hold them in my heart because uh, if, if you were a parole board, so many of these people, you would have paroled long ago. Many of them being even, this particular group I was working with, there were a lot of 60s prisoners, people from the 60s and all of that. that they won't let out for various reasons. 
Um, so anyway, uh, I, I would ask you to just try this with me. When you're saying the loving kindness, you're sending loving kindness to everyone in this room. And so you picture this, we'll do it with our eyes closed and lips, you picture the people in this room. Some of you are here for the first time, and, but that everyone else is here is what allows you to be here to hear the Dharma. Sangha is so important. And then after you've said the, the, the loving kindness, you are in silence for a few minutes and you're receiving the loving kindness for everyone in the room. For most people, a lot harder to stay present for just feeling that. But that's the practice. That's showing up. That's letting joy in your life. So here we go. Close your eyes if you're comfortable with your eyes closed. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. Calm, clear mind, and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy, and vital. May you be physically strong. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. As we learn to dance with life, may it be a benefit to our loved ones and to all of those with whom we come in contact. Any merit that may have arisen from our practice this evening, we offer it freely to the benefit of all others. May all beings everywhere, those near, those far, those we like, those we dislike, those like us, those very different from us, May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you very much for your kind attention. And, and
look forward to seeing you someplace or another. And will James be back next week? Next two weeks? Longer? Okay. Well, James will be back eventually. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.